Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our podcast. I am extremely pleased to uh, have with us here Salman Zaidi, who's a dear friend of mine. Uh, Salman Zaidi is a man of many talents and many interests. Um, he's currently serving as director of the Jinnah Institute. Um, and we are today going to be discussing issues from foreign policy, national security, climate change, and, you know, a number of areas that of, of his interest. Salman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And for that bombastic introduction as well. <laughs> You're most welcome. Uh, so Salman, I think uh, the past year, year and a half, two years have been, uh, you know, a proper roller coaster when it comes to Pakistan and, and regional dynamics, um, regional developments taking place. And I think, um, you know, they've been discussed ad nauseum. And uh, what I really wanted to see was, uh, or discuss with you was, um, how do we take the lessons that we've learned really over the last year, two years um, with regards to regional developments and, and how do we construct, you know, um, a policy going forward, whether it's foreign policy, national security policy, and of course, they, they, they both go hand in hand. But how is that process, you know, undertaken for a country like Pakistan? So I'm glad that we're discussing a process as opposed to outcomes of foreign policy or national security, because in the search for timelines, perhaps a two-year timeline or a five-year timeline depends on what you're looking for. The, their tectonic, tectonic plates have shifted in Pakistan many times. You know, APS, the APS incident brought about a great deal of uh, soul searching in Pakistan and how we redid our foreign policy. Of course, August 5th last year was another such shift whereby we fundamentally altered our relationship in the region and particularly with India. Um, CPEC may also have been not such a tectonic shift but this, you know, augured the slow onset of a permanent change in how the region views itself and prosperity, well-being, you know, um, and fundamentally what we are able to offer our people. I also Absolutely. don't want to 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 sort of take a view of um, Pakistan as, um, you know, frequently we when we look at our policy, we see Pakistan as a monolith. No, we are a very, very contested and cacophonous reality when it comes to policy. Policy is an untidy space to operate in for anybody who has you know, ingressed uh, into this uh, domain. Um, the way it is articulated, fashioned, refashioned, is sometimes dependent on, f frequently dependent on external factors. Mm -hmm. But many times internally, you know, our soul searching leads to definitive answers. And we have found very many of them. So your question about how do we see the past? I see it, frankly, as with a degree of um, happiness, shall I say. And that is not something that we uh, can frequently, you know, credit ourselves with. There is, in Pakistan, you know, reasons for happiness are very few and far between. But our policy has moved in the right direction. And as we proceed in a region that is falling apart, that is, again, conflicted, um, and there are very many questions about how shall we secure ourselves? Can the region sort of save or, or, or create a, a pathway to success and prosperity? Pakistan offers a rare opportunity and um, reason for stock taking what has gone right. And I'll stop there. Perhaps we can converse a little more and unpackage all of this. But there's uh, the reasons for... Um, you know, feeling any uh, sense of gladness about this is the way our foreign policy has been refashioned, is the way our national security frameworks have come together, is the way we're representing ourselves fundamentally at international forums, is the way uh, our evidence creation and sort of interlocution within 
has gone right. There are many, many lessons to draw from, but there are many things to feel happy about as well. Well, Sirman, uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, I think you know it's very encouraging hearing that that uh, you know because a lot of things don't go right when it comes to developing policies in Pakistan or, or those things. But 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 seeing that you know on the foreign policy uh, uh, sphere, uh, seeing developments happening that we've learned from, that we've matured with, that we have um, you know internalized and 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 actually come up with responses to effectively. I think that's really encouraging uh, from that perspective. So. I mean, uh, so one of the the issues. I mean, you spoke, and, and I'm really interested in the word you use, happiness, um, that you saw coming out from, um, you know, the lessons that we've learned, and and I think a lot of lot to do with that, at least from my perspective, is that we've overcome a lot as well, right? Um, terrorism has been, you know, probably the issue of the decade for Pakistan, um, if not for two decades, really. Um, in that regard, what do you think Pakistan has really overcome, and 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 how do you think we're we're going forward? So there's many things that come to mind. And, you know, one thing I'd like to talk about is our de-radicalization program. Now, that also runs in a covert space and that the lessons there are sometimes very tenuous. But we've had good news consistently from our de-radicalization programs. And these, you know, go as far back as 15 years. Um, mm -hmm. You know, after the SWAT operation, that's when they started. Absolutely. And we've heard multiple figures of, you know, 80% retention rate, etc. Um <clears throat> The good thing is that many other countries have been reading into our de-radicalization program and asking us what programs we use, how has it happened, what are the numbers like, etc. The world has struggled with DRAD programs all across the Middle East and in India in particular. Oh, absolutely. Across the the Indians ask at attract two forums, etc. What our templates are, are looking like. And of course, this is not just dealing with Islamist terror. It is dealing with, you know, how societies go bust mm -hmm. and how, how to contain violence within. Violence and you know, uh, the extremisms that apply with deprivations, the extremisms that um, are developed with um, a sense of political angst, etc. Now, Pakistan has uh, its share of, of troubles. You know, mm -hmm. FATA is a story. We're still mainstreaming FATA. The legal questions apply. And you know better than anybody else what the deprivations there have been. Balochistan is a, is a story where we consistently have low HDI, etc. You know, all across Pakistan, there are everyday systemic challenges in uh, containing levels of violence. Of course, gender-based violence is, is a huge story. Now, I don't mean to suggest that Pakistan has it wrong. You know, if we were to start looking at the other, the flip side of the story, then um, there are many, many things going wrong. At the same time, we have finally perhaps come to terms with putting money, um, money where our mouth is. And that's difficult emerging out of a country where, you know, you have had two years, uh, two decades, actually, of, of consistent war. But while we have fought and fought badly and lost many lives, we have not lost those lessons. This is far ahead of regional countries, India, for example, who have not been able to innovate their, 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 their sort of counterinsurgency or counterterror templates as we have. In fact, the Indians see terror in a very different light as we do. Oh, absolutely, we have yeah. had the benefit of fighting in Afghanistan. Not not fighting, not not the benefit. Not not to gloss over this or or feel in any sense that you know this war was uh, should have been avoided. Of course, but our ability to fight and fight internally, in terms of of knowing um, how the battlefield has shifted 
to our cities, how we secure our cities, um, is again far ahead of what perhaps you know international partners have been able to do. Now, this is just one area. DRAD, our ability to fight and 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 draw lessons. We are also now very cognizant of um, deprivations that apply internally. Our national security frameworks make good reference, and and those papers are being revised. The first the first policy came up in twenty fourteen. Again in twenty eighteen, it's coming up again. And many of those lessons are about how people need to be empowered. Mm -hmm. And this is actually a fundamental shift <clears throat> in how you turn policies inward and finally start talking about vulnerabilities that apply. We can talk about climate change as well because that's the major sort of operative lens of how vulnerabilities must be reduced. No, absolutely. So I, I really want to get to climate change. But just before that, you know, building upon what you just said, um, I think one of the the issues you've, you've spoken about deprivations and you've spoken about uh, a lot of the the lessons that we've learned coming out of this, you know, this this crucible of of terrorism and how it affected Pakistan and the militancy there. When you go forward building policy, what are really the the aims uh, of rebuilding, um, you know, a state, a society, uh, a, a country? Um, what what are some of the the, the main issues that we will be looking at? Sure, I think it depends who you ask. And I take a development lens to the whole act of rebuilding. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, one borrows from the wisdom of um, national as well as multilateral organizations that are building this. This is this wisdom emerges from a civil society space. Absolutely. Which looks at the whole question of vulnerability, which looks at fundamental freedoms, which looks at um, equitable citizenships whether those standards are being met of course a lot is going wrong and i do not want to pretend at all that the last uh, five years or six years or even decade has um has been a boon for something for for fundamental rights you know pakistan is a long way uh, from from reporting well on on that front but what i do see now happily uh, is an ability of of civil society groups as well as um to to is is to be another way to maybe look at it is the the variety and diversity of voices that one hears in this space not all voices are equal neither are all of them heard but pakistan's ability to put up effective agitation despite problems that apply with regard to fundamental rights, is a sign of strength. And um, unlike many other societies, Pakistan still puts up a very good fight when it comes to asking back for fundamental freedoms. Um, we still have it very good in our ability to audit policy. This is another measure of mm -hmm. looking at how one rebuilds back. It, it certainly is, and I don't think it's something that is so visible. Right, publicly, but the fact that we can go back to the drawing board or that we can go and revise, uh, you know, such fundamental policies, I think is 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 very critical. Uh, just just you know, as a lawyer, some of the things that are before me when we're looking at this space is, you know, there are institutions that still keep, um, you know, power in check or or limit uh, abuses uh, of authority that that take place, and I think those still function despite all their uh, you know criticisms. But things like the judiciary in Pakistan which has always remained you know, a very strong proponent of human rights, 
uh, you've had you know your odd cases here and there but i think every country has that um i think that's you know been a critical uh, bulwark against um a lot of the potential abuses that you could see uh, and, and that we have seen in the region especially you know when you counter this with with developments in neighboring countries um in india what's happening the supreme court is almost complicit now in yeah. in in a lot of the decisions yeah. from from ayodhya babri um and the two two decisions on that um and that is something that is deeply concerning i think uh, from a regional lens also the supreme court has played a very effective role in um, the climate change space um in 2016 if i if i have my dates right uh, a farmer put in a case with the lahore high court saying that the constitution actually um treats clean environment as a fundamental right absolutely and therefore where is my right you know with smog etc and that actually led to uh, the creation of the national security you know the national climate change policy the national water policy came up after that institutions were created you know so so the supreme court has uh, taken a, you know a very activist role in this respect uh, a smog commission was set up etc you know that is a far cry from what other countries have been able to do where the senior most level of, of the state uh, the citizen has um, access as well as attention uh and having moved from forward from that i think the supreme court has also taken a very active view of the evidence we have the evidence that we report internationally uh whether it be gsp plus or or at you know at geneva every year we put in our um stats on human rights on on you know cases of child sexual abuse etc um we are we are we're not doing so well one has to admit but there are different centers of power mm. that assist fundamental rights as well as the <clears throat> citizen in making a case for um for attention and and consequence of human lives you know um this may be creating a new criteria away from hdi away from the measures of um traditional entitlements human consequences perhaps um a very abstract way to put what a citizens are able to achieve but it connects with the idea of vulnerabilities mm-hmm. if you reduce vulnerabilities then exclusions are reverted it may not necessarily mean that inclusion comes about but i think the agitation within pakistan for including marginalized groups marginalized cohorts into the mainstream has had a long standing history you know seven decades in the making the state has sometimes assisted this sometimes the state has not assisted this as much um but there are many many cases that come to mind where the state has actually put in a put in a case on the side of the citizen um you know so as we as we sort of move into this as we move into have we transition past creating new entitlements um such as digital rights such as environmental rights for our citizens Pakistan is actually on the right side of history can i say it is very it is on the wrong side of history on a great many things mm-hmm. uh, you know our 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 security apparatus uh the workings of the state are still very very can i say premodern mm-hmm. um the the way agitations happen on our streets sometimes outpace the ability of the states or or its or duty bearers to listen to what citizens are saying to appreciate what's to appreciate yeah. to be able to absorb to be able to turn what they are saying into policy formulas and that is the case all all over the world we must also realize that um regions that are as transitional as as south asia perhaps these agitations will never end 
it is uh, we have fundamentally uh, uh, a large youthful population that is uh, hyper intent inventing itself with you know with the internet and with new sort of pressures that they that they face every day um with integration into an economy that asks for new skills with new kinds of migrations that are bringing modernity as well as new psychological challenges now can any, has anybody kept up to all of uh, you know tabs on all of this i don't think anybody can and certainly not the pakistani state um while the pakistani state may not have kept up with how citizens reinvent their realities um or even make good on their asks their contemporary demands for policy change the state may not be as antagonistic to their uh persuasions as other countries now this might seem like the bare minimum mm-hmm. but in countries like pakistan that have undergone violence and conflict um and still continue to be you know involved in strategic new strategic alliances etc um the state is emerges as an entity not antagonistic to its own citizens as other entities in this region have no i think that's a it's a very important point that you raised that um you know the the state in pakistan uh, is is such a, a complex issue it's such a complex uh, beast that 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 seeing uh, you know what we see in the news constantly being uh, bombarded with negative news and failures of the government that isn't really you know the overall aim and and we do see um you know the state working towards a goal which is um generally on the whole i think uh, you know a positive uh, angle that it's it's going towards um so suman uh, moving on uh, i wanted to look at and discuss with you what you know between pakistan and india um the past year we've seen you know 5th august happening um the domicile act being passed um uh, you know indians from outside uh, jammu and kashmir being brought in encouraged to be brought in um and then along with that you know a lot of other developments happening within india how do we go forward how does pakistan go forward from this particular position now there's been a lot of thinking in islamabad on how pakistan moves forward we've made uh, a number of moves uh and of course at the heart of this comes the kashmir issue and the kashmir issue is not a territory issue for us as it is for the indians for us as it is about the people and uh our our you know our advocacy at international forums including the un security council has been about how human rights abuses need to be uh reduced how the lockdown needs to be uh taken down how internet you know other things need to be need to come back um there is a degree of acceptance that india may not uh go back to article 370 which was again a provisional uh kind of law that came into place certainly not under the bjp government of mr modi that has a has an agenda uh which seems to have permeated their foreign policy and national security established to such a degree that things seem irreversible to a large extent india is not um a country that we recognize anymore uh and here i sort of i say this because uh at the track 2 level we have dealt with india 
and the many iterations of India under its governments, there was wisdom, there was clarity, there was a great deal of complementarity in much of what we did. We shared a common vision on South Asia. Uh, but this was, of course, uh, now predates Mr. Modi. There are common issues that the region has. Um, but there is certainly no, uh, no bandwidth for dialogue anymore. In Pakistan, the view is very prejudiced towards India. And the Indians, of course, have been, have been giving us this message for many, many years. Now, Pakistan's moves have been to, um, to create a diplomatic bandwidth for peace. And that extends on both sides of our border. You know, in, in Kabul, we made that move. In India, we made that move repeatedly. Just so that if we are able to create an agenda, and creating an agenda is a vexed process. It comes in a very, very, you know, like in a, in a pressure cooker environment. No, absolutely, yeah. And it does not come easy. You have to look past your troubles. You have to look past the violence on the LOC. You have to look past Udi and Bala Court and Pathan Court, all of those incidents which no, Indians keep throwing yeah. at us to still be able to create an idiom for peace and, and create options for the people of Kashmir, I find that is something that, the, that Islamabad has stuck to. And we must stick to. Because whatever happens, you know, it's foreign policy can get very, very uh, caught up in a privileged story or in an ego story. Mm -hmm. And that is where, where, where New Delhi is stuck in uh, uh, an, an, uh, an ego posture that doesn't seem to change. When you speak to interlocutors, when you speak to their diplomats, you know, when, when, you, when you're confronted by things like, you know, we've had a clash in Ladakh, we will expel your diplomats. Things like this, which don't really add up, but you can understand the pattern of dealing with, um, frankly, a very peevish attitude. This is not diplomacy. This is, uh, this is a very... I mean, I don't want to get all cynical about it and use other adjectives, but this is something that we confronted with Kabul as well. Mm -hmm. You know, the personality of the premier permeates how diplomats engage, and it is not helpful. So, and and it's it's for it's for, you know it shows Pakistan's maturity here as an actor that is looking for stability. We have engaged an interlocutor in Afghan in Kabul as well to be able to shore up diplomatic uh, goodwill. We don't have the same opportunity in India. We used to. We used to have a back channel. We used to have many more things going. But we don't have that opportunity. Coming back to your question, you know, how do we, we move forward? Perhaps applying multilateral pressure. That's one way to do it. And we have consistently done it. They do respond. It's not like the Indians are not, they, you know, for, for a power that presents itself as, you know, a new kind of, you know, a nuclear power sending spaceships abroad, etc., they are very, very thin-skinned when it comes to comes to diplomacy. <laughs> that's, that's 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 something certainly noted, uh, especially over the last year or two. Um, so I think I think you've given you know a lot for us and and the viewers especially to to uh, to digest on 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 this issue. I wanted to move on to the issue of climate change, and I know we've discussed it very briefly before, but uh, again within the the context of India and Pakistan, one issue and something that has uh, you know something of deep concern for for people in international law is the Indus Water Treaty hmm. and rather the the fragility of 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 its mechanisms for dispute resolution uh, and whatnot. Where do you see the future of the Indus Water Treaty and and you know water disputes between India and Pakistan, which are so critical to uh, you know not only our relations but to our people uh, domestically uh, in both countries? The future is um, 
not a great one. And uh, that's simply because India and Pakistan collect data internally very badly on, 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 on their water, on their river systems, etc. On the, on the basin itself, that debate has actually become a casualty of uh, the larger Indo-Pak relationship. So I'm, I don't necessarily, I'm not terribly keen on looking out for where the treaty goes. The treaty is not in crisis. It has held, mm-hmm. you know, throughout decades of, of, of conflict. But India and Pakistan's ability to manage their water is certainly uh, okay. a space for for watching with anticipation and some fear. Um, we collect water badly. Uh, we collect our data badly on on our river, rivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, water science. We also collect our water badly. <laughs> for sure, for sure. You know, and um, you were making a push for for large infrastructure projects, damming, etc. You know, the jury is still out there, and whether this will actually. Um, benefit Pakistan. The net benefit is sometimes outweighs the uh, the the net cost outweighs the benefit. Mm-hmm. Mm, Pakistan needs to create an integrated water management system to begin with. Absolutely. To yeah. be able to reduce vulnerabilities, to be able to and say again, coming back to the criteria of what looks like a good good build up. If you can reduce vulnerability here. For example, our women who are working in fisheries in, in, in Karachi or Sindh, uh, will they benefit? Mm-hmm. With Will, you know, transgenders in the heart of our provinces who are a marginalized group um, be have more access to drinking water? No, absolutely. I bring these groups up as examples of where vulnerability lies. Absolutely. And policies cannot be divorced. You know, policies sometimes operate in this overhang of this very very divorced reality that does not have any popular ingress but when policies have to fundamentally respond to vulnerabilities on ground unfortunately our climate debate is stuck in some administrative or technical jargon Mm. and i'll give you one example of it you know when we constantly refer to the billion tree tsunami we are unable to see very you know literally unable to see the woods from the trees Mm. The woods of climate change does not mean that do not mean that you grow 10 billion trees. You know, the cost of that large infrastructure project may all be very well. But is that the first place to look? Pakistan's first uh, problem is water, water availability. Absolutely. We are not looking at the basin. When we speak of the basin, we start talking about the Indus Water Treaty, which is we, and we don't have a function or, or mechanism to speak to the Indians. We do have one actually under the treaty, but it's not being used, utilized. So we must, use, we must use the vicarious, the longer route, the you know, attracting international attention. While that may not happen, because the World Bank has said we don't, we're not going to intervene exactly, in this dynamic. Yeah. Um, you, you then start speaking to, to Afghanistan with whom we don't have a treaty on the Kabul River. They are also part of the basin. Mm-hmm. You start, start talking to China, uh, who is part of the basin. In Pakistan, again, we need to have much better science. You know, bring the, the the hydrology experts, bring the water scientists together and ask them what the problems are. And these problems are not known, very well known to our legislators. So, Sima, what are some of the issues? Is it because, you know, whatever policy we do have is too fractured, is too divided amongst who? Or is it because, uh, you know, our decision-making is too compartmentalized, too bureaucratic, uh, all of the above? All of the above. Uh, the federation is looking at climate change and going ahead with a tree project. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, in the provinces, those mandates and policy chains don't fully apply because there is no Ministry of Climate Change. There is Ministry of Environment that carries that mandate. Yeah. And lower down, as you go down the, uh, the, the policy change, you know, implementation um, metrics differ. Capacities differ. Budgeting differs. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, Pakistan is not not very good at even budgeting its um, you know projects. Any evaluation of those projects, you look at you know all four provinces and then GB and AJK. You really have to scratch your head and ask, who did this? Is there a central coordination mechanism? There isn't. There isn't. Yeah. Right. But that doesn't mean that we cannot redo this pattern. We can. And the Council of Common Interests, so other forums are are there for exactly this reason. Right, that you that you resolve national problems there, mm-hmm. and those forums aren't being utilized. Unfortunately, it is the federation that triggers this this um, dialogic kind of uh, or creates or preserves this pattern. But but at the federal level, do we do we not see climate change being a priority, or is it that you know they've made it a priority, but they lack the sophistication in you know expressing that. Uh, through the entire federation to the provinces and and to the you know subordinate units within the country to be able to come up with a cohesive uh, formula to, to to solve a lot of these issues. So I don't want to suggest that there is no sophistication at the federal level. There mm. is sophistication. People who are dealing with it, and thankfully we're we're sort of finally in a phase where we are giving this uh, very important issue, you know, its uh, attention on the highest level. Okay. But what I suggested, what I, what I meant to say is that you have to connect. Pressures on ground with the policy prescriptions that you make. Okay. Does Pakistan have a good reading of vulnerability? Does it have enough evidence from ground? Who is it looking for? Mm. Who is it willing to empower? Who is it willing to benefit? Unfortunately, across the world, climate change action uh, triggered by federal governments everywhere is stuck in administrative terms. When you talk science, then you are talking about you know, large open spaces, the glacial melt, etc. You have to be able to connect it with people because mm. people bear the brunt of climate change. It's not our buildings. It's not the trees out there. It's not the billion tree tsunami. It's not our cars. Cars. It is our Ultimate marginalized physical. cohorts. Mm. Saman, thank you so much. I think we've had a, a great discussion not only on constructing foreign policy and and national security policy, but but also looking at uh, you know climate change and, and policy that's developed there. But you know, just to just to round it off, just to you know give it some some closure. How do we uh, have policies that that have you know people as the center and people focused, people centric policies uh, being developed in a place like Pakistan? That's an interesting question. I feel that policy is never really in crisis. Uh, it is people who live through uh, the consequence of policies, whether they go wrong or right. And sometimes they result in violence and conflict and frustration, which expresses itself in many ways. But I feel for states, it is very important to be able to reinvent themselves and keep up with the times. And the, and the, and the, the major asks of our age are how rights, not fundamental ones, but emerging ones, mm-hmm will be incorporated in our contemporary reality? This is a question that many states are, um, you know, are unable to answer. But it, these are answers that we must devise. These are questions we might, must devise answers to ourselves. Um, our people are resilient, as they have demonstrated over and over again. But resilience 
turns to frustration very soon if there is nothing in the offing mm-hmm. and while there are emerging realities pakistan does need to make good on the fundamentals of its constitution that is to empower citizens by giving them material advantage you know pakistan needs to make good on providing food security jobs livelihoods that is the basic requirement of states reversing exclusions and finding ways effective ways to do so is a contemporary challenge pakistan has not done a very good job of including its cohorts in fact our constitutional amendments have relegated certain cohorts of the population to the side and those exclusions have become entrenched over time i think as pakistan goes forward in its policy prescriptions and its frameworking of um how to provide for uh, the people of pakistan it has to take a very long hard look at how inclusion can be implemented how it can be programmed also going forward i think the resilience of the people of pakistan can be banked on mm-hmm. this is a country with a large youthful population that is talented and diverse and able to um equip and resource itself you know and that is that is a that is a strength that societies in transition or societies with such levels of poverty exist this is a country that can reinvent reinvent itself and offer more and more to the world other than potential you know we have we have things to offer uh which sometimes the state does not build into its programming Mm-hmm. uh we need to be cognizant of this talent and diversity and resourcefulness going forward also i find that we have to move away from things like providing hdi uh and the hdi is not provided of course the hdi comes about in a particular way but also looking at new metrics of human consequence um how far can our citizens go mm-hmm. if they get, if they are given so little right we cannot uh undo uh, the 25 million kids out of school the sort of through the whole covid response the social protections that we offer or the social welfare that we offer offer can all become medium term um you know uh projects if you like if we don't look at long term human consequence outcomes mm-hmm. that's where states need to move and pakistan is certainly no different when we have opportunities like we mentioned at the at the beginning of the discussion where we have those opportunities going for us then perhaps the state needs to move forward into areas that will give dividends for the next 20 years salman zadi thank you so much for joining me thank you